Yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, the, the old system of physics, that Newtonian idea of the way the world existed, the atomistic approach to materialism, all of that's broken down. Our idea of the individual psyche being this self-contained uh, permanent entity, that's evaporating, uh, completely gone for a lot of people. And, and what it has left, what those things are leaving in their wake is a great hollowness. Speak the charm of me. Come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will lose This is the Arnamancy Podcast. The world is weirder than we know. Join your host, Reverend Eric, in his diverse array of amazing guests in an exploration of tarot, magic, the occult, and the history of Western esotericism. The Arnamancy Podcast exists thanks to the support of generous listeners like you. Please consider supporting this podcast for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash Arnamancy. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. I am here today with my good friend, uh, C.R. Dunning, also known as Chuck. I call him Chuck. Uh C.R. Dunning has over three decades of experience as a practitioner, advocate, consultant, and facilitator of contemplation. In his career in higher education and mental health, in masonry, and with other groups and individuals, he facilitates and teaches mindfulness, meditation, and imagery to enhance people's experiences of life in many ways. Many ways. Like more than two, you think? Um... I think I'm up to like 33 different ways is the last count. That I... That's that's a lot of ways. Yeah. Wait, like, did you get a white hat for this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is my first uh, in-person interview where I get to use like my full recording equipment, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, but anyway, so, so Chuck, welcome to my new podcast. It's great to be here. I'm just loving all of the different colors on your board here. That's fantastic. It's amazing. You know, if you had uh, headphones plugged in, I could use some of these sound effects and you could hear. Oh, nice. But I'm not going to, there's not going to be any, there's not going to be any sound effects. This is a very serious episode. Oh, okay. So there's no wah, wah, none of that. <laughs> I do have the wah, wah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you just had a new book come out very recently, yes. like within the past uh, couple of months. Yeah, it came out in July. That's pretty exciting. And it is called, we have uh, multiple copies here with us, The Contemplative Lodge, a manual for masons doing inner work together. So the last book that you had come out was Contemplative Masonry, mm -hmm. and I interviewed you along with uh, Matt and Joey and maybe Nate. I don't know. We had a big group on My Alchemical Bromance. It was a really good interview. The recording was a little weird, so... I guess I will link to it in the show notes, and you guys can totally go, go listen to it, but there might be some weird echoes and stuff, so don't uh, <laughs> don't get freaked out by that recording. This one will be better. And so this is sort of a sequel to that, which is cool, but before we talk about what's in the book, I kind of want to hear a little bit more, you know, since I don't really cover Freemasonry very much on this podcast, I kind of want to hear a little bit more about some of your other stuff. Like, you must have had... And I, I already know the answer to this. This is just a leading question. Oh, okay. But uh, you must have had a lot of experience that you brought into Freemasonry to begin introducing all of these topics to Masons and Masonry in general. Can you talk a little bit about your background in weirdness? Yeah, sure. Uh, I was born a weird child. So <laughs> it starts from there. 
So my, uh, my background, I would say, in the practical side of what we might generally call esotericism goes back to the mid-80s uh, when I started working with a professor of mine uh, who's now deceased. His name was John Miller, and he taught a course in philosophy called the Ancient Wisdom Traditions. And in addition to, to covering a lot of these esoteric traditions, primarily from the West, but also some Eastern stuff, he taught uh, non-credit seminars in meditation. So he was really my initiator into formalized approaches to meditation. And the thing that we primarily worked on together was a system of kundalini yoga that was really about activating the chakras and using the seed mantras with the, with the chakras and, and doing some energy circulation and energy work of different kinds, breath work. At about the same time, I was also learning some mental health meditative techniques because I was working in uh, a substance abuse rehab. I was a caseworker in a substance abuse, abuse rehab and one of the counselors there taught some meditative techniques that people who were in recovery could use to their benefit. And so I learned some of those things from him. Um, and then uh, after working with John Miller and using some of these mental health techniques for a while, I had been doing that for, I guess, two or three years or so when I finally became a Mason. And through Masonry, I got connected with uh, a, a genuine teacher who carried a private lineage in uh, Hermetic Kabbalah and Rosicrucianism. And um, he wasn't a Mason, but he always had an interest in Masonry, and it was through uh, a, a common acquaintance who is a Mason that we connected with each other. And I really quickly understood that this guy was not only someone who knew the philosophy and the language and the history of Western esotericism, that he was actually deeply involved in it and could teach me. And so I worked with him for about 16 years, I think. And, uh, and it was during that time that I began to formulate the approach to working with masonry that I developed in, uh, and, and put into the book Contemplative Masonry. Um, stripped of its, of its particular, the, the techniques stripped of their particular associations with either Kundalini Yoga or, or Hermetic Kabbalah and just taking the technique itself, the raw technique itself and using it in a way that fit well with the Masonic tradition and symbolism. You had the, the, the training in um, sort of like uh, mental health meditation and stuff early on. How did that prepare you for uh, adapting all the other meditation techniques that you were talking about, all those other techniques to, to masonry? Like, because I assume that, I assume most of the time when you're dealing with, with mental health meditation, it tends to be a fairly secular approach. Yes. How does that necessarily work when you have a meditative technique? Um, how do you go about sort of like stripping away all of the trappings of specific traditions or specific religions and still end up with something usable? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it can be tricky. But I think one of the things about having a background in psychology and in counseling and having had training in some of these secular forms of, of uh, meditation for mental health work, one of the things that it made me sensitive to is what is the effect of this technique on the psyche? Just on, on the psyche itself, 
And, um, you know, and certainly you can read Jung and his work in Active Imagination, and anybody who's experienced in doing things like pathworking can say, oh, Active Imagination and pathworking, there's a lot of similarity there. Of course, pathworking can mean different things to different people, but, but there are similarities between things that are being done in the secular world and things that are being done in the esoteric or spiritual world. And in fact, I think it's, it's really probably the case that everything that's being done in the secular world for mental health purposes and for personal growth and those sorts of things has actually been borrowed all along from these ancient traditions in one way or another. I mean, you know, you can take a look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and it looks exactly like somebody has taken the chakras and put them into a pyramid form. Oh yeah, I think aliens taught us how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Did you run into techniques during your um, exposure to like Hermetic Kabbalah and Rosicrucianism that you weren't really able to adapt? Yeah, there are some things that I, I don't think that you can adapt. And, and I, I, I think the reasons for that would be, no matter what tradition, if you were talking about the invocation of a particular spiritual being, mm -hmm. then in a Masonic context, that's not going to be appropriate because in Masonry, we try to be um, nonspecific. I mean, we clearly work within a kind of Abrahamic tradition because that's where most of our mythology of the building of King Solomon's temple and everything comes from. And we tend to use that theological language, but we also leave it open to interpretation so that anybody from any faith or belief system can adapt it to their own needs. So I think it's particularly with the invocation of spiritual beings that that we have to be really careful about how can we transfer that into a Masonic context. And so by and large, I've, I've tended to avoid that. Uh, and this is a little out of left field and not necessarily having to do with the contemplation stuff, but I was just sort of wondering, a lot of Masons are really interested in sort of the overlap between Freemasonry and some of these other traditions. Yeah. Uh, with uh, Hermetic Kabbalah in particular, have you encountered a lot of stuff in Masonry that makes you think like, oh, this is... I mean, I know Hermetic Kabbalah came way after most Masonic ritual, right? But um, but they might have, like, grandparents in common, or they might have... I'm just wondering if you've seen any sort of, like, really blatant Kabbalistic imagery showing up in Freemasonry. Well, certainly in the Scottish Rite. Sure, yes, yeah. And I guess you could almost put... I guess it's kind of a stretch. It's hard to... It's hard to put the Scottish Rite Kabbalah in the same school as Hermetic Kabbalah, but it definitely has like a parallel evolution. Yeah. yeah. There's, I mean, there's no doubt in the Scottish Rite that both Hermeticism and Kabbalah are there. I think what you see in the Scottish Rite is actually kind of a reflection of a kind of Renaissance occultism before the Hermetic Kabbalah was actually solidified into the thing that we now call Hermetic Kabbalah. Mm -hmm. But we see a lot of that idea of looking towards these ancient traditions for that perennial wisdom at the core of them. And, uh, and the Scottish Rite is just right there in that milieu. And I think it's kind of stayed there, which I appreciate. I'm, I'm glad that it has um, because you still get to uh, encounter and consider these ancient traditions in a, in a somewhat less syncretized way, certainly still syncretized within the Masonic context, context, but not quite as much as it would be, say, in a particular school of Hermetic Kabbalah, for example. In the Blue Lodge, or the craft degrees, those first three degrees of Masonry, 
Um, you know, there are all kinds of things that I think anybody who is enamored with Kabbalistic symbolism will look at and say, well, there's the Kabbalah, you know. Um, we can start with the pillars, you know, Boaz and Jochen. Right, right. Actually, I guess just because they, they share sort of uh, uh, so much co-symbolism. Yeah. Wait, is that a word? Anyhow. It is now. Yeah, they share symbolism from the Bible, or from the Old Testament in particular, uh, and I guess that would just... By association, you're going to see a lot of that stuff showing up. Yes. Whether it was intended or not, you're going to be able to find connections and parallels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So in um, in Contemplative Masonry, your, your first book, you brought over a lot of like visualization techniques into, um, into sort of your like uh, Masonic contemplative work. Yes. But in your professional life, you have done a lot of counseling and, you know, you, as you're talking about uh, mental health work. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of stuff, uh, the, the sort of like visualization techniques that you used, is, is there a lot of room for that in um, counseling and therapy in the secular world? There are lots of opportunities for that sort of thing, but a lot of it kind of depends upon the client, what they're interested in, um, how far they're willing to go with some of this stuff, because some clients are just not really interested in doing this kind of structured inner work that we're talking about. They're really more externally focused, and even though they recognize they need to work on themselves, they want it to have a more kind of external quality to it. But um, visualization, my gosh, can be used for all sorts of things in counseling. It can be used as a kind of form of rehearsal for, okay, you're, you have a problem with this kind of situation and the way you behave in this kind of situation. Let's rehearse you behaving differently. Now imagine yourself in that situation and encountering the same kinds of things that you would encounter. Feel the feelings that you would feel under those circumstances and respond to the way you would like to respond. Mm -hmm. instead of the way you have habitually responded. So that's one example that a lot of people, I think, are are comfortable with. Right. Okay, that makes sense. I guess I kind of knew that. I I haven't been to a a therapist in a very, very, very long time. You might want to think about... Some therapy? (laughs) (laughs) I have very supportive friends. (laughs) Actually, you know what? Me included. Yeah, actually, you know what? Telling somebody to go to therapy when they need therapy is being supportive. (laughs) We shouldn't. (laughs) Okay, so now let's also talk about, like, uh, your exposure to uh, Rosicrucianism. Are you, uh, can you uh, discuss any of that, or is it all shrouded in mystery and secrecy and stuff? There's some of it I can discuss, and some of it I'm obligated not to, just because I've taken on the traditional obligation obligations of different lineages or whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, there are two different Rosicrucian lineages that I actually hold and can pass on through initiation to others, initiation and training to others. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are any of them, do any of them belong to the uh, familiar Rosicrucian alphabet soup that our listeners might be familiar with? Uh, No. Um, Well, one of them is publicly known, Mm -hmm. but it's not high profile. Okay. It's a fairly low profile. It's associated with a another tradition of esoteric Christianity that is more well known. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the there's one private lineage in particular that um, has just been teacher to student, teacher to student, teacher to student that goes all the way back to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Oh, cool. Okay. So inside these traditions of Rosicrucianism, like Rosicrucianism is sort of uh, like historically from, you know, in the 
early 17th century when it was founded, it was kind of presented as a form of like mystical Protestantism or maybe <laughs> mystical right. Lutheranism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, does it still kind of carry that same sort of connection or... I mean, I guess the impression that I have is most uh, most current Rosicrucian lineages don't really date back earlier than the 1800s. Right. And it's hard to know from the outside. I, I, I mean, I was uh, a member of Amorc for a few mm-hmm. months when I was 18. You know, I did the, sort of like their monthly... You, you mean the Rosicrucians? The Rosicrucians. You know, <laughs> okay. the ones in San Jose, the <laughs> right. traditional seat of the Rosicrucian Empire. Yes. Having been exposed to two different Rosicrucian lineages, then do they are they remarkably different, or do they both sort of hold to the same kind of core values of like an esoteric Christian um, thing with like Christian Rosenkreutz and Yeah, I think that's a fabulous question, and 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 I'm really glad you asked it because it's one of the favorite things for me to talk about in Rosicrucianism, and that is that the Rosicrucian movement has just become increasingly diverse over the years. The Rosicrucian movement is kind of like, for me, it's kind of like this, well, let's use the symbolism of a rose bush, right? It starts, seems fitting. Yeah, starts off from a seed, and then that seed turns into a sprout, and then that sprout becomes a bush. And that bush just continues to produce, you know, new stems and, um, and branches and with lots of different flowers, and, and those flowers can be very different from each other. And so that's kind of the way I experience Rosicrucianism today. There are so many different varieties of it, and some of them are, I would say, extremely Christian to the point of, I mean, even kind of fundamentalist in their Christianity in some ways, and others are I mean, they're not identified specifically with Christianity at all and barely have any reference to Christian theology and Christian scripture at all. Mm -hmm. And then there's lots of room in the middle for a mixture. And I think that probably most Rosicrucianism today is is a kind of more uh, open and welcoming form of Christian mysticism, Christian esotericism, Christian occultism, where uh, you can find uh, non-Christians welcomed to participate. It just kind of depends upon the order or the lineage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, inside Freemasonry, we have a few different expressions of Rosicrucianism. Um, probably the two best known are the uh, the Rosecroix degree in the Scottish Rite, yes. and then um, the various uh, society. You know the SRICF, the SRIA, Societas Rosicruciana. Yeah, yes, like you know, that's it. And uh, and even then, you find I mean, I mean like the Scottish Rites uh, Rosecroix degree, they'll take anybody who's a Mason and has been accept- accepted to the Scottish Rite. In the Southern jurisdiction, that's true. Oh, in the Northern jurisdiction, it's also true in the Northern jurisdiction. But if you go outside of the United States, the Scottish Rite and some other obediences is uh, for Christians only. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's so weird. Uh, yeah, that's kind of the opposite of how it is in the United States. I mean, I, I remember when I first went through my degrees uh, 21 years ago, <laughs> I was told, like, oh, yeah, if you're Christian, you'd join the York Rite. If you're yeah. not Christian, <laughs> Scottish Rite's for you. <laughs> same message, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I joined the York Rite just to spite them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so inside, uh, inside Rosicrucianism, how much emphasis is sort of put on uh, Christian Rosenkreutz as this, uh, as sort of, um, I don't know, like a, either a legendary leader or, or what have you? 
Um, again, I think that kind of goes to the particular uh, lineage or organization. I would say that uh, in some, I mean, there's barely any reference to the chemical wedding, for example, of Christian Rosenkreutz. There's barely any reference to that text at all. Um, but on the whole, I think most people who identify with the Rosicrucian movement recognize of the three manifestos, the three core manifestos of Rosicrucianism, that the chemical wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz is the quintessential kind of statement about what the Rosicrucian process is, where it mm -hmm. leads. Another term we might use is the great work. It really is kind of the reference point for what it means to, to do Rosicrucianism. I find that so fascinating, especially since, was it the Fama that had like the list of principles, like the, the list of the, the 42 rules of... That's the Confessio. The Confessio. Um, yeah, because it just seems like... I, I guess I've always just sort of been baffled that that doesn't get more attention. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the reasons that the Confessio doesn't get as much attention as, as maybe the other documents is, is because it kind of comes across in, in, in a couple of ways. One is it can be used to kind of hammer home this idea that if you're not a really pious Christian, you don't have any business messing around in Rosicrucianism. That's one reason, and the other reason is that, um, so, so, so let me just restate that. I mean, I think the primary reason is because there are things in the Confessio that can lead to this, if you're not a pious Christian, you've got no business in the Rosicrucianism. On the other hand, uh, the Confessio also kind of has a little bit more, I think, of a political tone to it, mm -hmm. and, the, uh, and the politics of the Confessio and, and to a lesser degree the Fama can be objectionable, I think, to modern audiences in certain ways. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, uh, I mean, for the listeners who aren't aware of this, the those three Rosicrucian sort of like core foundational texts came out, uh, they were published like a year before the Thirty Years' War started. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the Holy Roman Empire was a mess, and they, those books were published like right in the core of the Holy Roman Empire. So yeah, that, I could see how the politics would be a problem. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. They were, they were really advocating for, um, you know, they believed that a lot of biblical prophecies were going to be fulfilled in their time. I mean, when has there not been a group that you know, that b didn't believe that? Uh, before about 35 AD. <laughs> if then, right? And, uh, and so, uh, so, so they really were looking for some big political changes, and they also indicated that they were going to be providing spiritual assistance to those changes. And then they weren't there. <laughs> and they might even been a myth. They might have been a total myth. Uh, they may have been a total myth. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of speculation about uh, Rosicrucian kings and queens mm -hmm. uh, during those times, but the fact is, is that the the big changes really probably came more as a result of the Thirty Years' War oh, than than they did from Rosicrucians <laughs> providing spiritual assistance to political leaders. Yeah, well, I think you know, I mean, uh, there were also all of those uh, defenestrations. I think those helped a lot. Oh, yeah, there <laughs> Throw, you, go. you know, throwing people out of windows. Yeah, <laughs> right. So you published uh, Contemplative Masonry what in like 2017? It came out right at the end of 2016. 
a few years have gone by and you realize that there was a need for this new book. Yeah. Uh, what sort of, uh, what was the need? What do you think people were looking for? Well, one of the things that happened was as I was going around working with different Masonic groups, talking to them about contemplative practice and and often leading contemplative activities, facilitating group meditations and so on, uh, people would come up to me after these experiences and some of them would say, well, you know, that individual work is great, but I really need some sort of a group to help me keep going. And others would say, this activity we just did was fantastic. How can we get more of that? Uh, and for a lot of people, group experiences have a much more significant impact on them than anything that happens in their private, solitary experience. And, um, and so essentially, this book was just an answer to a call from the audience of contemplative masonry saying, we would like something that's focused on how we can do contemplative work together as groups within a Masonic context. Uh, because of that first book, you've actually been invited to speak all over the country. Yeah. And who knows, maybe even in Canada. I don't know. Uh, yes. Yeah, in yeah. fact. Mexico? I haven't been to Mexico. Oh, one of these days. I've, I've had some virtual presentations. I mean, it's mm -hmm. like all over the place. I mean, all lots of different countries. So there's a, there's a huge hunger for this material. Like Masons yes. all over the place want it. Enormous. Do you feel like um, this signifies sort of a shift in Freemasonry away from what it had sort of turned into in the 20th century? Yeah, I absolutely do. Um, I, I often, ref I had been referring to it as the American Masonic Renaissance until I started to get exposure to a more of an international audience. And then I realized, no, this is not just happening in, in the United States of America. Um, I mean, there are some countries in which the contemplative, spiritual, philosophical, psychological dimension of Freemasonry was more active. But even in those countries, it's, it's growing more rapidly than it had been. Uh, so I think that there's a global Masonic Renaissance happening. I do believe that, you know, you referred to this previous generation, we could kind of call it 20th century Masonry. I think that the rapid expansion that came out of World War I and World War II actually served to narrow the focus of Freemasonry on fellowship and philanthropy. And um, because these more spiritual, philosophical, psychological interests just naturally appeal to a smaller percentage of, of the general population. Mm -hmm. And so now as the membership numbers in Masonry are declining, I think that there is more room for people to begin to express their interest in these sort of things. It's not as forbidden as it once was to bring these sorts of things up. Not only that, it's really clear from all of the research that's been done over the last 10 years or so, 20 years even, that, um, that Masons of the younger generation, so Millennials and Zs, are coming in looking for this deeper experience. That This is what they want from Masonry. And so as our numbers decline, I think a lot of the, uh, a lot of the decision makers are saying, look, if we want to survive, if we want to keep our lodge open, if we want to keep this temple paid for, then we're going to have to appeal to this new audience, this new 
group of, of, of incoming Masons. Uh, are there parts of the world where you're seeing this change happen more? Um, I'm probably not. I probably don't have enough exposure to be able to answer that question well. Yeah, I, I don't know that I can say that, that there would be one or more places. I do know that, um, so for instance, in Central and South America, the esoteric side of Freemasonry has long been a really vital part of their Masonic experience, and I see that really starting to come, they're being more open about that and, and, and uh, inviting more Masons from America into dialogue with them. I know that um, in the Middle East, some of those countries in the Middle East now, their masonry is starting to, to come out a little bit more and to demonstrate more interest in the esoteric side of things too. But I can't, it's, it's hard for me to, to compare who's, who's really surging compared to the others. Tell us a little bit about what's in this book, The Contemplative Lodge. So uh, you, you talked a little bit about it, about uh, sort of like a need for more group-based activities and group-based work. Um, how did you kind of approach that? How did you sort of decide on what sort of uh, group work the lodges were looking for? Well, basically what I decided to do was just look at a broad spectrum of contemplative activities and see which ones I thought just most naturally aligned with Masonic lodge work or chapter work, if you're in the York Rite, um, or the work that's done in Scottish Rite Valleys. Just what kinds of activities would naturally enhance those experiences? So, you know, the things that I came up with were just some basic meditation. How can we come together and, and sit in silence together? What's it like when we chant together? Uh, I know that that's one of the most popular kinds of activities when I go around and, and facilitate workshops or retreats for Masons. Chanting always seems to be really popular and it's one of my favorite forms of contemplative practice. Um, guided meditations with lots of rich imagery and a kind of a story that, that you're leading people through, the facilitators leading people through. Uh, you know, masonry loves its mythology, and there are lots of things there that we can dig into deeper through that process of guided meditation. Um, the practice of contemplative dialogue, or in the book what I refer to as discourse, um, I think that that's a really important thing. Masons being able to, I mean, our tradition says we're supposed to give and receive counsel and instruction. Mm -hmm. And so uh, dialogue is how we do that. And so how, what does that look like if you do it in a contemplative way and how would that be facilitated? So that's one of the things that I cover in the book. A lot of sort of the initiatory esoteric and occult orders that are currently in existence um, have a lot of influence from Freemasonry. Uh, and in fact, you know, I mean, I've been a part of a few of them too. And a lot of the times you kind of get the impression that um, the founders of these particular orders probably just didn't think Freemasonry was going far enough. They're like, no, we want it to be more, uh, you know, more esoteric, more symbolic, more something, more something. Um, so given that level of experience, given, given your exposure to those other groups, are there, are there techniques that you feel like other initiatory orders um, have developed or worked on that uh, maybe Freemasonry isn't ready for, but you're kind of like hoping that someday Freemason will be ready to embrace? <laughs> that's, that's an interesting question. Um, 
I think I think maybe I can envision a day in which more Freemasons might choose to be involved in some of the more uh, advanced or heavier, deeper techniques that are practiced in some of these other traditions. As far as the organization as a whole, I try to be really careful about saying where the organization as a whole would go with this sort of thing, because I think there comes a point at which the tradition itself cannot be prescriptive. Masonry itself does not need to be prescriptive about what individuals do with their inner work after a certain point. Um, you know, like for example, in some traditions, once you reach a certain level of initiation, from that point forward, you're really your own teacher, your own guide. You mm -hmm. determine what your studies and your practices are going to be from that point forward. And so I think it's appropriate for that same sort of thing to happen in Freemasonry. The problem is, is that <laughs> in the past, that's been happening since you walked in the door. You know, it's like it's been up to you to oh, determine yeah. what you're going to do and what you're not going to do without any guidance or suggestions at all. Or the only guidance we've really had is like, you know, learn your memory work. Right. Memorize some stuff. You're set. You're, you're good. You're a full Mason now. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. I guess, uh, you know, uh, after having had uh, the experience that I've, that I've had in Freemasonry, like sometimes there are things that seem worth exploring that might be like extra esoteric or extra strange and kind of attached to the craft. Um, and definitely Freemasonry has like led me down some corridors that I do not think I would have otherwise, you know, traversed. Right. And some of that is your fault, I'm sure. <laughs> Glad I could corrupt you. Hey. <laughs> and yeah, you know, uh, even outside of Freemasonry and other organizations, chanting is very popular. Yeah. There's something about that. How... Uh, it's not really something that we can do on our own necessarily. I mean, we can a little bit, you know, there's definitely, you know, uh, for instance, in um, self-initiation, golden dawn things, there's always like, you know, the vibration of sacred names. And the, sure, with the and middle pillar technique. Stuff. Yeah, so. the middle pillar technique right. and those sorts of things. You kind of adapted some of that to Freemasonry in your first book, didn't yeah, you? Did. you? You had like a middle pillar Masonic yeah. technique. There's a yeah, basically a middle pillar technique. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, did you call it that? I can't remember. No, I didn't. I, didn't I, I remember. Call it that. There, I remember sort of thinking in your first book that there were some places where you were like, where I was like, oh, I see what he's doing, and I see what he's yeah. not saying on purpose. <laughs> right, and and there's a similar exercise in the Contemplative Lodge to do with a group. So, oh, cool. Yeah, I, I just think that that same, by the way, the middle pillar technique that we have in Hermetic Kabbalah, I mean, that itself is, I mean, it's not the first uh, technique like that to ever have ever appeared. I mean, This is part two of my interview with amazing author and mystic and Freemason C.R. Chuck Dunning. Um, just in case you couldn't tell that the Chuck part was in finger quotes because it's a nickname. Um, we, uh, I, I know that part one kind of stopped abruptly and I know that probably sounded uh, extremely um, unprofessional, you know, as compared to how I usually sound. But we had a really good excuse. Our good friend, Matt Anthony, who used to be my co-host on My Alchemical Bromance and uh, is a 
long, also a longtime friend of Chuck's and was, you know, anyhow, you guys know who he is probably. He just showed up. He just drove all the way down from um, Puget Sound uh, really quickly in a, in a jute probably, or maybe oh, in yeah. a car. Yeah, in the jute. In the jute. Uh, because he was like, what? Chuck's here? I'm, I'll be right there. Jesus. <laughs> so uh, welcome, Matt. Thanks. to the second half of this interview. Excited to be here. It's good to see you, buddy. It's good to see you. In contemplative masonry, you have certain practices and certain um, contemplative exercises that were definitely inspired by uh, other orders, other yes. uh, the practices of other orders, uh, one of them being um, an adaptation of the middle pillar right. ritual. Uh, the middle pillar ritual is used in the Golden Dawn as this sort of way of focusing on different sephirot uh, in the body, sort of, I guess, in, um, I think it's sort of a direct allusion to like chakra work, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, except that that's, that's right. I mean, it's, it's a very similar technique to some things that are done in Kundalini Yoga and also some things that are done in uh, Tibetan Buddhism and certain tantric practices. And it's the idea that there are energy centers in the body. And even if you don't want to zero in on specific energy centers, the idea that there are currents of energy particularly associated with the spinal column and, uh, and the nerves branching out from there. I mean, we can find this in all kinds of different traditions. And people were working with this energy, visualizing it, circulating it, long before the middle pillar technique was ever created. Um, how did you uh, how did you adapt this technique to Freemasonry? Like Freemasonry doesn't really have a thing that deals with um, like energy points in the body very much. Well, not overtly. It certainly doesn't overtly. Although I think a lot of people see allusions to it through some of our signs. Right, right. And I'm and now I'm remembering two specific spots in our ritual where we literally assign like virtues to parts of the body. Yes, that's right. I was you just just a little ahead of me there. That's where I was going to go. Our signs and then these things about the virtues being associated with certain points mm -hmm. in the body. Yeah. So there are illusions there that could definitely be built upon. That's not something that I have, have really expanded yet, but I think there's more that could be done with it. My the, the exercise that I put in contemplative masonry and have a similar group exercise in the contemplative lodge is really just about illuminating that central shaft of energy that goes through the body um, that parallels essentially the spine um, and then moving energy up and down that shaft of uh, energy within us, circulating energy. Uh, like what we see on the caduceus, for example. Mm -hmm. And then you managed to find a way to adapt that practice in the contemplative lodge so it's sort of everybody at once? Or yeah. does it move energy throughout the lodge? No, it's just everybody in the lodge doing the same internal action. I, I really didn't take the contemplative lodge in the direction of people externalizing their energy and moving it around. Although I do talk about how visualization can help in ritual. So for example, in Freemasonry there's this tradition that there's a ray of light that extends between the three great lights on the altar and the master of the lodge. And so one of the things that I suggest is that people visualize that, actually imagine seeing that ray of light as it's a like way Indiana of... Jones. <laughs> well of course. <laughs> yeah. 
since so many of these practices are adapted from other traditions, like so, uh, in 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 part one, I'm I'm just filling in Matt now. Those of you in the audience, I'm just sort of reminding you of what you just listened to. But uh, <laughs> in part one, we sort of talked about how so many of these occult orders uh, originated in Freemasonry in some way, and they sort of like went outside of Freemasonry and uh, and developed all of these other techniques. Um, sort of beyond the Masonic Lodge. And some of the work that Chuck has done in the previous book and in this new one has sort of reintroduced some of these ideas back into Freemasonry or maybe brought them there for the first time. Um, but the fact that you were able to do these sort of adaptations, the fact that in particular, like the middle pillar could be adapted, does that mean that you think that perhaps that that, that sort of middle pillar style exercise could be useful in... Uh, in any tradition? Yes. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think it's, it's just part of our nature as human beings that that subtle energy is something we all already have. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, there are so many of these more ancient traditions that we're already working with this energy and in very similar ways despite being separated, you know, into remote locations on the globe from each other. And, uh, and, and having different religious traditions in which they were occurring, that uh, I think it's just really clear that this is part of human nature to do this. So, you know, why not as part of our Masonic experience? Stuff like the Middle Pillar uh, in the Golden Dawn, it's sort of part of a magical tradition and sort of like a magical, you know, set of tools. And you have, um, you know, I guess with Golden Dawn magic, you usually start with like... Uh, you have your banishing rituals and your invoking rituals mm -hmm. and stuff like the middle pillar is sort of something you do in kind of a, um, you know, already sort of sanctified or purified space. Do you think that there's room for uh, more of those um, magical type rituals in a Masonic context? I, just in case you're worried, I do not believe that any Grand Lodge officers anywhere <laughs> that you are attached to anything will ever listen to this. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I appreciate that. Um, my, uh, my basic idea is that the rituals that already exist in Freemasonry are all the rituals that we need. What needs to change is the, the inner work that goes with them. So the opening of the lodge is a banishing and an invoking. We just need to understand that that's what's happening and understand how to tap into that through the use of things like imagery, through what we do with our emotions, uh, and through what we do with our subtle energies, all those sorts of things. If we know how to do that, then the magical potential of Masonic ritual will just manifest. We don't, we don't have to bring other rituals in to Masonry. So I think that's a really nice way to look at it. Freemasonry already has sort of a level of completeness to it. I think so. Matt, you have any questions yet? No questions yet. I know you just showed up and we're kind of putting you on the spot, but... <laughs> well, no, I mean, like, the whole idea of, um, you know, masonry already having all the ritual it needs, and you don't need to augment it with anything else, but the idea is lost a lot among a lot of Freemasons. Like, we use the word ritual a lot without even thinking about it. Like, no, it's a literal ritual. Like, we are doing magic, yeah. but that's lost on most craft. It was lost on me for a long time. It's one of those things where, like, when I became a Mason, I was amazed when I saw people taking the ritual seriously. Mm -hmm. um, but it turns out that they were just sort of taking it seriously in the sense that, like, oh, yeah, we're Masons, we do ritual, uh, and not really taking it seriously in the sense that the, the ritual itself could be a, a, uh, a conduit for transformation. Yeah. 
Yeah, I like that term, conduit for transformation. I mean, it's clear if you look at the language of a ritual itself that that's what it's intended to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, we look at ritual as the opportunity to change a human being's direction in life. That's a transformation. Mm -hmm. Now, it may not happen all at once, but the ritual itself should be a turning point that over time leads in a significantly different direction than a person was headed before that point. Mm -hmm. and, and so you were talking about the difference between Masons who just kind of go in and, and they know the words and they say the words, those that want to do a nice performance, but just simply out of the kind of the conviction that that's what you're supposed to do. We know that there's a significant difference. I mean, just somebody who just cares about the quality of the performance. If you've got a room full of Masons who just care about that, the ritual itself is much more powerful than it is for those that they're just mouthing the words, they're just getting it over with, right? Mm -hmm. Then let's take it another step and say, okay, what if you not only just care about performing the ritual well, what if you also want to communicate all of the energy that is supposed to be tied together with the words and the imagery? A lot of that energy is manifested through the emotion of the person performing the ritual. Mm -hmm. It's also, it's also channeled through things like we were talking about through visualization and, and, and maybe some of the meditative techniques that you might use to prepare for ritual or something like that. But that same degree of difference that you had in those first two examples can be had between the second example and what we're talking about now. And that power increase can make a huge difference in the transformative potential for the individual receiving the ritual. That's a fascinating idea. You know, it, it, it also makes me think of, um, I think one of the things that Freemasonry has lost is, uh, you know, that it's sort of like reliance on the art of memory. You know, like mm -hmm. we used to not have a ritual that was memorized wrote, you know, yeah. so it wasn't just word by word by word. Uh, our ritual tended to be memorized as concepts and things that were explained and mm -hmm. that sort of stuff, uh, which was done through visualization and you know, and it's sort of like an inner work that kind of went alongside the outer work. And it's yeah. sort of, um, yeah, we definitely, we definitely are missing that now. It's, it's so funny to me. It's so funny that Freemasonry exists as sort of like this, this grandfather secret society with these very, very rich ri rituals, with like a super long tradition. And, um, and probably like way more complicated ritual than a lot of other societies have managed to come up with. I'm not talking about the Golden Dawn, of course, who I don't know what the hell happened there. But, um, <laughs> but um, you know, it, it's sort of uh, in, in spite of the fact that its rituals are very complicated and and detailed and old. It's just it's kind of uh, a lot of Masonic ritual has kind of gutted itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think that's true. I mean. I think not only gutted itself of the internal dimensions, but in some cases, the rituals themselves, the, the actual written rituals, um, have been gutted. Mm -hmm. Because the whole, the whole understanding of what ritual existed for was lost. And so, for example, a lot of the Scottish Rite rituals that at once were these very beautiful, highly symbolic things, have in some cases basically just been turned into uh, hollow shells of what they had been previously and and hollow shells with lots of cracks in them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, don't get me wrong. I love the Scottish Rite. I mean, that's what attracted, huge part of what attracted me to Freemasonry was the Scottish Rite. And it's the place where I'm most active as a Freemason. I'm still a great advocate of the Scottish Rite. But I mean, you know, if, you're, if you truly love something, you also are honest about, about it. I suppose we should also reveal that we are in the basement of a Scottish Rite building. That's um, right. Like one room over from the black helicopter hangars. That's right. And we don't, <laughs> we don't want the spirits of previous generations getting pissed off. At right, us. because they are all around us. We are surrounded by uh, these beautiful stained glass windows. I'll, 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 make, I'll make sure some photos get into oh, that. I wish you would, yeah. because they're so beautiful. They yeah. Are. After Contemplative Lodge. Yeah. Uh, what's next, Contemplative Grand Lodge? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you really That's are trying to get me kicked like, out of masonry, yeah. aren't you? <laughs> 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 um, so I've had two books in the works right now. I won't go into too much detail on them, but my next book is really focused on the Rose Croix degree or more properly pronounced Rose Croix, but most Americans say Rose Croix. Right, like LaCroix. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's where the soda came from. I don't know how many people know that. Oh, that's the, the, it's the most esoteric of flavors. <laughs> that's right. I'll have the rose faith flavored one. Um, yeah, so it's it's concerning with the uh, the uh, rose croix degree, the eighteenth degree, and um, I will just say that there are clear connections between that degree and Rosicrucianism. Mm -hmm. And like my previous degrees, this book will be contemplative with practical instructions for actually working in this tradition. This sounds like something that, um, I mean, it's so great seeing all this stuff because Freemasonry has been missing this. You know, in the, the Scottish Rite, we had, the, the Southern jurisdiction had a, um, Grand Commander, that's sort of like the head poobah of the Scottish Rite. He wears the buffalo horns. Um, <laughs> there was one like uh, in the early 20th century who was way into like weird psychic powers and stuff. And Clausen. Clausen. Yeah, he was amazing. He wrote some crazy great stuff. He that, did. That sort of, he was sort of considered a little bit of a uh, black sheep and an embarrassment by later generations of Freemasons. So a lot of his really amazing books just kind of went out of print and secretly, quietly went away. Um, right. I wish I, I, man, I wish I could remember the titles of them. One of them is totally something like, you know, psychics. It's not psychic self-defense. That's Dion Fortune. Yeah, but it yeah. sounds like that. You read it and you're like, oh, is that a Dion Fortune book? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's Freemasons. <laughs> right, right. But it, uh, it really, like, it's just, it's such a shame that so much of the stuff is lost, uh, especially since... You know, one of the things that happens over time, um, especially in the Scottish Rite, is degrees get edited, sometimes to make them shorter, sometimes to make them easier to understand. But if we don't have an understanding of, like, the esoteric meaning behind some of the stuff, it gets left on the cutting room floor. Yeah. And um, luckily, I don't think—I mean, I'm sure it's happened already to the 18th degree— uh, I'm going to give the I'm going to give the the outsiders version of the 18th degree. We should just talk about it. It's so it's it's the it's basically the Rosicrucian degree in the Scottish Rite. It is, and it has roots that go back to the Rosicrucian revival in the early in the mid 1700s. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, oh yeah, yeah, and it's it's very theatrical. There's um, there's uh, Christian imagery. There's um, there's secret words. There's this whole concept about like the book of nature. So there's this sort of like natural philosophy theme that runs through it. And uh, along with this like theme of kind of like redemption and um, sort of like the vital quality of love as like a binding force in the universe and like all the stuff that's really great. I don't know. 
I guess I have a hard time looking at the ritual of the Rose Croix, Rose Croix, in uh, in modern Scottish Rite and connecting it to what I understand from uh, you know the 17th century Rosicrucianism, but um, but what we have now it's it's a very bizarre esoteric degree. I've done I've I've memorized parts of it you know to to do in ritual and it's uh, it's kind of crazy. It's, yeah, it is still, I think, my personal favorite Scottish Rite degree. I mean, that's a hard thing to say. I mean, it's no Prussian Knight, (laughs) which actually is my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Why am I not surprised? Well, I mean, it's such a great, well, well, Prussian, I think the Prussian Knight, which is currently the 21st degree in the Scottish Rite, is a great example of a degree where the good stuff has been cut out. Mm -hmm. If you go back to the old stuff, it has this amazing like backstory, rich mytholo- mythological history that goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel. Yeah. And it has um, Noah's grandson is sort of like the, the the founder of the degree, and he retreats to Prussia in, in shame and is found in this very Rosicrucian-style secret vault under the earth and all the sorts of stuff that... Uh, you should. You should probably. I don't want you to have to rewrite your book, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that's book five. Book five. Yeah. <laughs> the contemplative Prussian knight. Yeah. Um, yes. You know, mindfully slaying your your enemies. You know, actually, I think the current version of the 18th degree in the revised Pike ritual is more overtly Rosicrucian than the previous versions of the 18th degree. Do you think that was done on purpose or was it an yeah. accident? You no, think it no, was on purpose? I, I think it's absolutely on purpose. Mm. The alchemical language is much more apparent that, than it was. If you go back and look at the earliest versions of the 18th degree ritual, just what's overtly offered just sounds basically like mainstream Christian theology mm-hmm. that is made available for others to enjoy whether they're Christian or not and, and benefit from, not just enjoy, right? But if you know what to look for, you can find the symbolic connections with Rosicrucianism and the fact that, that, that those original forms of that ritual arose at the same time when some other quasi-Masonic and Masonic Rosicrucian degrees were definitely being written and performed, and some of which still exist outside of Freemasonry in the mainstream. But the current version has got, like, um, if you look at um, the Scottish Rite Ritual Monitoring Guide, from De Hoyos, there's really clear language in there about uh, al- alchemy. That wasn't so clear. The alchemical connections weren't so clear prior to this version. That's, uh, yeah, I guess um, I would buy that. I don't, I'm not very familiar with the older versions, but it's funny because um, there are a lot of people out there who struggle and struggle and struggle to find connections between Freemasonry and alchemy. Yeah. There's some. Uh, there's a couple of good books on that right now too, and and the titles are are not coming to me, um, but but there's been one put out this century. I wish I could remember the name of the book or the author, but my impression of it was that it was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, I read so many books; it's hard for me to keep up with what I you know names and titles now. Yes, I'm sure it's because you read a lot of books. <laughs> well, it has nothing to do with my advancing years. <laughs> Whippersnapper. <laughs> yeah, uh, so Matt, have you had a chance to look at the, the new book yet? I have not. You just saw it for the first yeah. time. But you've had um, this previous book, Contemplative Masonry, mm-hmm. for many years now. Yeah. Um, have you 
what do you have any thoughts about that after having <laughs> sat with it for he hated it <laughs> <laughs> no actually um the year that i was master of my lodge i used a lot of the the stuff from at least a lot of those practices prior to opening the lodge each evening so i found it really beneficial did you um did you ever lead of course, i think that was before it was in book form oh, oh yeah back when it was yeah. in the, the anonymous manuscript yeah. yeah i remember that that was great <laughs> <laughs> um so when you were when you were uh, using these rituals in your lodge did you lead the entire lodge in it or was it something that you personally used no it was just something i did okay yeah yeah was anybody else in your lodge doing that not that i'm aware of hmm yeah uh do you think they are now i'm not sure <laughs> i uh, no, i'm not giving you good answers on this but i know it's cool i'm sure it's all secrets (laughs) (laughs) chuck do you ever feel like you would like to pull more of the old rosicrucian stuff into modern rosicrucianism like do you think that that's missing at all is there stuff that that has been left behind that you think shouldn't have been um well to some degree that's hard to say because as i was saying earlier the the diversity in the Rosicrucian movement now is so great that pretty much whatever you're looking for, you can find. And, um, and, and I know that there is a kind of, there, there are, just like in lots of other traditions, there are people who see themselves as kind of like purist revivalists, for example, in Rosicrucianism. They really want to kind of go back to those first three manifestos and maybe some of the other documents of the time that were closely connected with the Tubingen Circle and some of the other uh, apologists for Rosicrucianism um, and, uh, and really kind of zero back in on that kind of mystical Lutheranism that you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. right? And if you look at what kind of practices those fellows were doing, then you're probably going to be looking at, you know, some of the kind of common mystical practices uh, that you would find in Christianity across a number of of different um, barriers, you know, things like quietism and so on. Mm -hmm. But also alchemy would be the thing. Um, You know, it's clear that alchemy was a huge part of what they were interested in. And so the study of alchemy, the study of Kabbalah, I think they probably had a broader definition of Kabbalah than they weren't just talking, I don't think, about about Jewish Kabbalah. Yeah, they would have, I mean, they definitely would have been using Christian Kabbalah at that time. Yeah, and I think, you know, in in one of the references, they talk about uh, having gone to, I think it was Fez, and and to study, that's where CRC went, and uh, he found the Kabbalah there, but felt like it had been corrupted by their religion, which would have been Islam. Uh. And, uh, (laughs) you know, the, the good... Lutheran mystics had to throw in a condemnation of Islam. You sure it wasn't corrupted by Catholics? They probably should threw that in too. <laughs> well, they, they didn't like the Catholics either. No, they didn't. <laughs> so, and, but uh, but so if they were talking about Kabbalah in an Islamic form, then they were talking about Kabbalah in a much broader sense mm-hmm. than most people were talking about Kabbalah at that time. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't just the the Jewish tradition. I think they were talking about a a mystical theosophical approach to mm-hmm. to to spirituality. Yeah, maybe maybe using Kabbalah in a more uh, general sense. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Mm. I, that's my suspicion, anyway. 
And not to say that they, they weren't familiar with and interested in what we technically consider Kabbalah. I think they definitely were, but I think they were just more inclusive with what they threw in with it. Do you see uh, sort of the potential for like esoteric development or development of more inner work in all branches of masonry? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, basically, I see the potential for developing more esoteric work in anything. Like everything. Yeah, like everything. fast food workers. Yes, absolutely. I don't care what it is. I mean, sanitation workers. Yeah, mm. everybody could be could be plugging into something spiritual about what they're doing. I mean, I guess even at the very lowest level, just mindfulness. Yeah. Just having a more mindful approach to what you're doing. But but it's funny because we've seen that. We've already seen that happen. Yes. You know, the, that sort of like mystical approach or that sort of idea of any sort of craft or any sort of work or anything um, having like a spiritual or higher connection to something else. Like that, that existed... F- all over the place up until probably like 400 years ago, and it mm. just kind of was stomped out mm-hmm. by the Protestants. Yeah. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yes, and then the Enlightenment came along and... And made it worse. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 hold on, we can make this worse. <laughs> hold my beer. That's right. Just watch what happens over the next four centuries. <laughs> Do you think that uh, there's hope for that stuff to be reintroduced into everyday life? Well, I think, you you know, as you were just pointing out, I think, in fact, people are doing that and they're looking for it in lots of different ways. Uh, I mean, we have pushed Enlightenment philosophy well past its rational bounds. (laughs) (laughs) Now I want the sad trombone noise. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, the the old system of physics, that Newtonian idea of the way the world existed, the atomistic approach to materialism, all of that's broken down. Our idea of the individual psyche being this self-contained uh, permanent entity, that's evaporating, uh, completely gone for a lot of people. And, and what it has left, what those things are leaving in their wake is a great hollowness. In your in your ongoing work as a counselor, have you encountered people uh, like who you've been able to sort of like coach in contemplative practice, where they've walked away, sort of with a new uh, spiritual approach to the world, or anything like that? I've, I've I've been fortunate to have that experience a number of times. What does that look like? Um, it can vary quite a bit from one person to the next, but I think with most people, the thing that would be common about that is recognizing that just how much of complexity there is within them and and beginning to pay attention to that and to try to understand this huge complex interaction of factors and forces energies within their own psyche and acknowledging that they're not in control of it all mm-hmm. they're not aware of it all that uh, that what they think of as their as, as themselves that conscious personal identity is just a piece of this greater whole. And, and once they start realizing that, then there's the potential for that to lead to realizing, well, that greater whole itself is just part of a greater whole. And that ultimately everything is interconnected, interdependent. And when that starts happening, it really does significantly reorient a person's life. Mm-hmm. 
now the question about the purpose of one's life is no longer about satisfying certain uh, competitive goals or acquiring certain things. It's about what effect does my presence have in the world? And is that a good presence? Does it have a good effect on, on other human beings? And is it beneficial, you know, in, for me too? Mm-hmm. And I mean, now we're talking about love. I mean, that's ultimately what we're talking about, is that the more you begin to recognize that things are interconnected and that your existence is partly dependent upon all of these other things that you're connected with, and in fact, without those other things, you don't exist either, then a concern about the quality of your relationships with others, and I'm not just talking about other human beings, but all others, other beings, objects even, that significantly changes. You, so, you start to care mm-hmm. more. Basically, that, that feeling that, that you, listener, have about your cell phone right now, you should be experiencing towards everything in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> I love my cell phone. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that idea about love being so vital, it's funny how um, it's not new. No. You know, I mean, it's, it's an old, old idea that just keeps cropping up, and it just feels like every time somebody brings it up that they're shouting into the void, you know? Yeah. Where, you know, a handful of people will listen, but the the meaning of what love is or whatever ends up being so, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to define. It is. It's mysterious. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think ultimately everything, when we keep pushing and digging deeper and deeper and deeper, leads us back to mystery. And so there's another part of what I would say happens with a lot of individuals that I have worked with in mental health doing counseling for is them coming to a new relationship with mystery, understanding that mystery is something to be, to, to have a love affair with, to court and to enjoy. I'll share a story with you about a turning point in my life. I was in my 20s. I'd been studying with my first teacher, Dr. John Miller, and um, I reached this point of recognizing that the thing that was my biggest obstacle in life was was my fear of uncertainty. Um, That I had grown up with this idea that I had a responsibility to know as much as possible and that it was only through knowing things in this kind of enlightenment way that we're talking about European enlightenment, uh, a rational empirical kind of knowing. It was only through doing that that I would ever find any safety, security, comfort, meaning, any of those things that we all want. But through my work, my inner work and my philosophical studies with Dr. Miller, I realized that that was actually my biggest obstacle. It was the thing that was holding me back, that I was bumping up against things that were bigger than my mind could ever rationally empirically know or any human mind could ever rationally, empirically know, even the brightest. And so all of a sudden, I mean, I was driving down the highway when all of this became clear to me, this epiphany became clear to me. I was was actually headed north to go to college that day to have another class with Dr. Miller. I'm driving along there, this hits me, and 
it, initially it wasn't liberating. It was, a, oh my God, well, what do I do now? What do I do now? And then just as soon as the question had been asked, I had a vision. I saw a little toddler toddling along, right? You know, that kind of awkward thing when they're just like, they got a big smile on the face. This little toddler in my vision had this big smile on his face. And he was just like, his weight was just kind of carrying him awkwardly. He was racing into the adventure of his being because toddlers don't have any, I mean, they don't have the same kind of insecurities and fears that we grow up to acquire, right? The adventure of life and mystery is something to be dived into, not avoided, not cured with some kind of explanation for everything. Right. Right. Or initiation. Or, yeah, yeah. right. And so, and so I've seen many other people make that same shift in, in counseling, working with me in their mental health. And I don't have to, it's not like I have to lead them there. It's just I have to be with them, asking questions, reflecting with them on their experiences, and, and people will naturally go there in time. That's really beautiful. It's a wonderful thing to see, and it's a great privilege to be able to witness it. It's one of the, it, it's one of the most awesome truly awesome things that I have had the privilege to experience in my life. Your vision of the toddler, the, the idea that you were running against up, up against stuff that you just can't, that you might never, ever be able to comprehend. Like, I, I think that that's kind of a common mystical uh, achievement or whatever we want to call it. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people do come to that realization. You know, we we get so enamored by the love of mystery, uh, and then we realize at some point that, you know, love can be a lot of work. Um, yeah. But also that uh, sometimes the mystery is more mysterious than we can imagine. We weren't ready for yeah. how mysterious it could be. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And, and, um, and I think just learning to be okay with mystery, to be comfortable with it, Mm -hmm. Sometimes to just have it be sitting in the chair next to you, you know, it's like, oh, it's okay, there's mystery. Mm -hmm. And then at other times, it's like, yeah, you want to put your arm around her. and Maybe with that yawn thing. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yawning meditation. Oh, gosh, I need to stretch mystery. Oh, look, is it oh. okay if I put my arm here? <laughs> Well, I think we're we're getting um, close to uh, the time that we have to wrap this up. Do you have any questions for us? Oh my gosh, um, I may save most of my questions for after the mics are turned off and we have an opportunity to get together a little bit more privately lately. But uh, I think if you actually read between the lines, there, Chuck's that was a that was a blank verse poem, uh, and it was an acrostic that spelled pizza. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in beer. Yeah, pizza and beer. <laughs> well, how about you, Matt? Do you have any uh, final questions? Surprisingly, no. Well, <laughs> thank you for being co-host on the second half of this. I'm glad you were here, man. It's just great to see you. It's so good to see you. Yeah, yeah. thanks for letting me uh, interview you first about this book. My pleasure. I think you earned it. And uh, you know, because, you know, I'm all about people earning whatever they get from me. So Yeah, that's the one thing that I really uh, <laughs> taken away from our friendship. Like, boy, it's a lot of work. 
<laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, you, you did a great job as editor of the book. I really appreciated that. And, and it was my intention all along for you to get the first interview. Well, uh, just so that everybody knows, the book is called The Contemplative Lodge, a manual for Masons doing inner work together by C.R. Dunning Jr., it is available everywhere that fine books can be found, I assume. like, Yeah, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Um, right. I think all of the major book dealers have it. So Yeah, I'll have some links in the show notes. You can check that out. Do you have like a website or anything? I do. Oh. It's, it's let me think, um, chuckdunning.com. Chuckdunning.com. <laughs> yeah, it sounds very egotistic, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, so go to chuckdunning.com. It's spelled the way it sounds. Yes. Um, you also have a YouTube channel. So I do, great. The Contemplative yeah. Builder. YouTube the Contemplative channel. Builder YouTube channel. Okay, yeah. there will be a link to that too. Yes, and I uh, have uh, some guided meditations that people can follow along with there as well as other uh, videos, interviews, presentations, all kinds of stuff. Excellent. And also you're available for uh, speaking engagements, especially for Masonic Lodges. Yes, um, and I also do workshops and retreats. And in fact, that, that side of what I do is growing. And so anybody that's interested in contemplative workshops or retreats, even if it's not Masonic, if you're doing something esoteric, you're a Rosicrucian group or whatever out there, and, and, uh, and, and digging into inner work is something that you are interested in, then get in touch with me. All right. Well, thank you again for being a guest. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been another episode of the Arnamancy Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I have been your host, Reverend Eric. You can find Arnamancy online at arnamancy.com, and you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting the Arnamancy Project for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. 